After three weeks, we finally got through number 308. So now we are up to number 309. Do we have any questions or thoughts left over from last week that we need to talk about? Our main question answer was a guest from out of town. Question asker was a guest from out of town, so he's not here to entertain us with more of his questions, unfortunately. Okay, so now we're in, up to number 309. The master welcomed the discoveries of modern science. He pointed out, however, that science cannot really invent anything, nor can artists really create anything. All that man can do, he said, is rearrange what is there already. The arts and sciences, like man himself, are not important in the great scheme of things, except as they help to unfold the divine plan for the universe. Humility before God is the beginning of all true understanding. And, as he said also, pride, pride is the death of wisdom. You know, it, it, you just start with a simple phrase, Master, welcome the discoveries of science. Swamiji's really... Um, you know, it, you, you make a statement like that and you think, well, that's obvious, but it isn't necessarily obvious because some um, people in the name of spirituality reject a lot of modern life in one way or another. And um, the fact that Master didn't was more than incidental because he came in to usher in the age of Dwapara and of course his part of it was to usher in greater spiritual awareness but a very fundamental part of Dwapara is this huge technical revolution that we see happening all around us. Um, there's a lot of aspects to being a disciple and following a particular master that, that sort of, that demand our attention more than we may realize because if we're going to, let me, let me think about how to say this exactly. Because I had that opportunity to be with Swami Kriyananda a lot and to have lots of conversations in lots of different settings. It wasn't merely that I sat and listened to him in classes, but, you know, dinner conversations, traveling together, visiting other people, just hearing all kinds of conversation. It was like every aspect of life gradually got addressed one way or another. And oftentimes, or not often, but occasionally we were in, in places where well, even like when we would visit his parents, or um, I was remembering recently, I mean, this was decades ago, but when I traveled with him to Europe in 1982, um, we were guests in the home of the parents of Maya Devi and Helmut, who are German devotees who've lived in Assisi for a number of decades. They still lived in Frankfurt. Her parents were in Frankfurt. Her parents are very gracious if they're still living, are, were gracious and lovely people with a big home, and so we all stayed in their house. So Swami's having a lot of conversations over the table in English with these highly educated uh, Germans. He was a doctor, I'm not sure what she was, whether she had a profession. But so lots and lots of things got discussed. And also, you know, I would have the opportunity to test my ideas a lot of which got rejected. <laughs> but it was, it was sort of like partly how I learned, a, lo a large part of how I learned, is that I would just, 
I, I would add my two cents as a question and see where Swami took it. Because he always took any idea that I had and either clarified it, corrected it, or expanded it. So even the fact that technology is part of the master's plans is, is something that as disciples we have to integrate into our thinking and not feel that just because many positive values and, and many wholesome ways of being are also being wrecked by all of these technological advances, that doesn't mean that these things are happening against the will of God or that they're not part of Babaji's plan to help advance society in all these ways that are needed. This is just the chaotic middle ground while all of these things are sorted out. And just even that little thought, Master, welcome the advances of science. Oh, if, if one stops and meditates on it, you see that a whole, a whole dimension begins to open up. Um, discrimination is required. Wholesale acceptance isn't what's being asked of us. But even if we see negative features, we have to realize that it's, it's going somewhere that we're trying to go. Because the, the characteristics and the qualities of Dwapara Yuga are extremely different than the characteristics of Kali Yuga. In, in Kali Yuga, you know, just if you lived in a little valley in Switzerland, you never knew the people who lived in the other valley. And, and now n there's no boundaries to anything. And everybody, little tiny villages could even have their own dialects and virtually all their own customs and they never knew what anyone else was doing many years ago. Let me think. It may have, the Swami actually may have visited here. It was here in Palo Alto. But it was many years ago. Um, I don't remember his name anymore, but he was an Indian man, and we became connected. He was a very nice man. I haven't thought of him in years. I can't remember his name. But he'd spend a period of time, a lot of his life in India, just wandering around the country as Sadhus did, did then. And he watched a transition that he greatly lamented, which was village by village television entered. <laughs> and he, had, he, he began to make it a practice to try to visit only those villages where television hadn't come in. Because as soon as television arrived in any village, the entire culture changed. Because now suddenly they had access to the whole world. And they watched a lot of American television shows and things like that. Now, in the short run, of course, a lot of the effect of it was absolutely disastrous. But the other side of it is, and this is another thing you have to realize, if people are going to shift their moral values and their whole way of being just because television has come in, you realize they hadn't yet gone past it, they simply hadn't risen to the level of it. You know, a lot of innocence is not really purity, it's just either lack of opportunity or lack of energy. And so when you bring in the opportunity for people to actually reveal their own nature, even though that revelation may be less charming than what came before, that doesn't mean that those people are not making progress as, as individuals because they just need, they need a greater scope, a greater potential, greater education, whatever it might be. So we have a sentimental attachment to the way things are. 
and I know lots of people in the more advanced developing countries want the people in the less developing countries to stay as they are <laughs> and the people in the less developing countries sometimes developed countries who are working themselves to an early grave because of the lack of so many opportunities and are dying of boredom because they're they're just it's a stifling unimaginative atmosphere even though we might sentimentalize it are we really being helpful or what are, what are we actually thinking? So we have to figure out ways to turn all that, all that we're gaining into positive. And in the meantime, we're a little out of control. You know, it's what, what, the way I look at it, it's like it's Kali Yuga consciousness, which is fragmented and um, often selfish and materialistic and um, divisive and all sorts of other things energized by Dwapar Yuga. <laughs> so it's just like uh, we don't have the moral refinement to really use our expanded capacity. So we're just using our expanded capacity to be worse. But it's, an, it's still a necessary, it's a necessary phase. It accelerates also. Um, let's see, there was another thought I had with that. I'll just find it for a minute. And, and what's also happening is just the whole world is being reinvented. You know, the change of a yuga is a really big deal. It just, uh, I mean, and, and a, lot of, a lot of things are, are becoming extinct. You know, a lot of cultures, a lot of species. I remember when Swami read somewhere about a great effort to bring the alligators back to the Everglades because they were becoming extinct. Swami's comment was really interesting. He said, it's just a vicious, stupid creature. Who would want to have alligators? And he said, you know, in higher ages, you don't have creatures like that. And so they've managed to bring back the alligators to the Everglades, and now people are being eaten by the alligators. You know, which is, what is, yes, I understand there's an ecological relationship, and so on like that, I'm not being that naive. But nonetheless, we have to ask who's really in charge. As if, as if, Mere human ignorance could actually direct the planet. And, and because we're, we've inflated our, our Kali Yuga egos with Dwapar Yuga energy, people have decided that, that we're doing it and we can stop it instead of perceiving ourselves in relation to a greater reality. So the advances of science are an inevitable part of Dwapar Yuga. So of course Master welcomed it. Swamiji was always very interested. He, he used to get these mail-order catalogs. There was Brookstone, and there's another one that's out of business now, Sharper Image, you know. And they had these catalogs, and they always had um, toys, a lot of, I mean, not children's toys, but toys for grown-ups. Um, and a lot of them were a new technology. And Swami used to love to order from those catalogs, and he'd get a big box of glasses that you'd put on and lights would flash and it was supposed to change your consciousness and things that you'd listen to and little devices that you'd play with. He never really used any of them very long, but he was always very interested in sort of the next clever thing that somebody would invent. He himself never really learned much about technology beyond uh, being able to write on his computer and be able to write music on a computer. I mean, he learned the things he needed to learn. He wasn't at all interested for its own sake.
but he was very attentive to what was happening. And, and one of the things you see that, the, well, the total thing, we assume that all these separate cultures and separate languages are in some way positive. But what, of course, happens when you don't speak the same language and you don't live in the same culture is that you don't get along. You can't get along because you don't understand each other. And often you're very defensive about what you have. And so that's in itself what creates a lot of war and conflict, is that the only thing I know is my way, so my way must be the best. But in higher ages, you have a global civilization. In Apurushottama's book, um, The Yugas, he's just, he, it's, if you haven't read that book, it is so interesting. He did such a, he and they, David Steinmetz and Joseph Selby, those are their English names, they did such a good job of taking indisputable facts and then making another interpretation. I mean, there's many different ways to write about something that's hard to prove. But what, he, what they did was they just took things that, that were known and then talked about them another way. And one of the things that he talked about was how every traditional culture has, has many of the same myths and legends you know, like the flood or things like that, or explanations about how creation happens. And there's many different ways to interpret that. One of the ways that, he, that this book interprets it is that at one point it was a global civilization and everybody was connected in their experience. And then gradually, when you're on the descending side of it, everything begins to fragment. That's what Kali Yuga does, the Tower of Babel in which mankind was cursed to have multiple languages, whereas prior to that, everybody could communicate with everybody. So what we see coming up this side is we're working toward one, a one-world culture again. Uh, when I, in the 80s and the 90s, when I was traveling in many different parts of the world, some different parts of the world, um, everywhere I went, it, it was American culture had been exported for the most part, the worst of American culture. I remember staying somewhere in the heart of the old city in Venice, and the way I found the hotel was that you turned right at the Burger King, <laughs> which was also implanted in one of those really old buildings. <laughs> you went by the Burger King, you turned right. And the music and the fashion and everything like that. But what I realized was, right now, and America is, in all the world, the most Dwapara Yuga country. It's the most advanced. It has the most. I mean, now others are joining into it, but America was the one who started it all. That's why Master came to this country, because it could be done here. I mean, we can think of science, we can think of things like that, but America's Dwapara for a very simple reason. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator, with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No country in the world was ever established on that principle until America did. Nobody thought that all men were created equal and had the same rights from God. That's Dwapara Yuga. The rest of it is extra. But our whole country, this country of America, has been based on that fact. I mean, we're in a bit of a chaotic moment but the, the, the entire principle has been that if you, you know, whoever you are, you're the same as everybody else. 
and and it's all been tried to be set up to give everyone an equal chance before God. I mean, that's really a revolution. Everything else is extra. But what what happened, what I saw around the world, is that the American culture was being exported and adopted around the planet. At the present time, perhaps some of the very worst of American culture is being exported and adopted around the world to an appalling extent. But the groundwork is being set for for a global culture. And when, because it's not a question of if, but it's a question of when, all of the transitional chaos is worked out and all the karma of all of us who have been born on this planet for this transition either to build it positive or uh, a lot of I think demonic forces have incarnated to tear it to pieces you know then but still the structure will be in place and it will start moving into a whole a wholly different something very different but not yet so we have to just sort of ride with all of this and see what we can find and, and make the best of it. Master himself was active. Dr. Peter, let me think how this went. Swami said that Master was responsible for a few inventions and he also planted ideas in the minds of those who could pursue them. Master said that he, he inspired whoever discovered uh, antihistamines as a drug. Master took credit for having inspired the scientist with those ideas. Thoughts are universal, not individual. And Swamiji talked himself about his leadership was to project ideas to the people he put in responsible positions. And if they were receptive to him, and if they felt in tune with the ideas, then then they would receive them and act on them without ever really knowing where they came from. And I, I myself have experienced that many times that I gradually came to realize even without any external observable method that I was constantly being guided by Swami in the development of Ananda which I've been part of for a long time. And Master is guiding the whole planet. Babaji is guiding the whole planet. And they work through those souls who received them, who are interested in being part of that. I mean, it's an extraordinary reality that is happening all around us. And all of us have, as Swamiji writes about this in various places, when my book is published in a few months, you can read about lots of parts of it. But uh, he just said, it's a force. It's an impersonal force. And what we have is an opportunity to act as its instruments. Or we have the opportunity to miss the tremendous blessing of, of being receptive to this expansive, positive energy that's coming into the planet. So Master said that he planted the idea in whoever's mind it was to invent the antihistamine drug. And, of course, a lot of people don't believe in allopathic medicine and all that sort of thing. So a, a little fact like that is very interesting. Dr. Peter, when he heard that from Swami, commented because he knows about medicine he said that that particular discovery he said opened an enormous door to a whole whatever it would be a whole dimension 
of, of medicines and drugs that wasn't opened until that discovery was made. So it was something that none of us would know, but he knew that it was a seminal um, realization that led to a lot more. So even though not everything is perfect, you have to, you have to realize that, that, that we're, we're learning as we go along. I remember, uh, I mean, even now, you know, lasers. I was talking to a friend of mine who's not, a little younger than I, but closer to my age than 30. And uh, I was just commenting about, you know, those, those people who grow up with technology don't actually understand it any more than I understand it, but they take it for granted. I mean, I, I don't understand how indoor plumbing works. I haven't the foggiest idea. I have no idea how electricity works. But I just use it, and I've always used it. I've always been able to turn on a light. I've always been able to turn on water. I've always been able to turn on hot water. It's just all there for me. But when all of those things were first created, they were very complicated. And you, and you had, you know, the mechanisms were confusing, and you had to know how they work. When people start, first started driving automobiles, you had to also know how to fix your automobile. You couldn't just drive it. It wasn't like where you just get in and go off. You had to have your toolkit. You had to know what you were doing. You had to be able to change the tires. All these sorts of things. Then the next generation doesn't know anything about it. It just gets in it and drives off. And from one side, it looks like those people are really knowledgeable, but they're not. They're just born into it, and it's just like that. And so people who are uh, just assume that communication happens by all the methods that it happens now, just use that quite effortlessly, as effortlessly as I can dial a telephone. But because I haven't been doing it since I was two, you know, I don't really understand. I was uh, a friend of mine. Uh, her son is very technically minded. He's now about 40 and has had a career all the way through, primarily taking care of computers for other corporate, for corporations and things like that. But he just always had that mind. Um, you know, he, I, I just remember him being very small and taking apart the answering machine. It was just a telephone answering machine, but he just looked at it and took it apart. When he was even smaller, his mother was trying to keep him within the yard, and she got one of those baby gates that closed off, you know, that had this like that. She said she watched him out the kitchen window. He was maybe three. He walked up to it, and it was just a multi-step fastening process. It was not mechanical. She said he walked up to it. He didn't touch it. He just stared at it for about a minute. Then he opened it perfectly and walked out. <laughs> and it was just who he was as he grew older. He just, his mind worked that way. But, but what I'm saying about all this is... <clears throat> People will just assume, as we assume now. I remember when faxes came in, paper faxes. What an incredible thing that was, that when Swami was out of the country, I could just write to him and put it into the fax machine, and he would get it right then, instead of writing letters and waiting weeks and them getting lost in the mail and, you know, then long answers. I mean, you don't, nobody even thinks about that now. I just, if I want to talk to someone in Delhi, I just pick up the phone or pick up the Skype, or write them an email, or send them a text. But you see how that completely changes the world, and then all of a sudden, nobody's culture can hide. In fact, 
You can't even have a culture because you want to be part of what's happening, which is what's made English the language of the world. And eventually, whether people like it or not, you know, other languages are not useful. English is the language that's useful now. If you want to relate to the world, that's what you have to do. There it is, the, modern, the advances of modern science. The master welcomed the discoveries of modern science. So we have to think about how to turn it positive instead of just digging in our heels and wishing it were different. You know, we don't have to become scientists, but we have to have a, a, an impersonal, interested attitude in what God is trying to do. You know, and even if he's trying to wreck the planet in a lot of ways, you know, just a lot of things that used to be are just going to go away. And, and that's part of what climate change is doing. It's just shifting what used to be possible is not possible now. And we have to think... We, ha- we have to perceive reality and work with it. We can't just continually rebel against it because it just gets you nowhere. I, I know... Um, anyway, that's a lot of what holds the world back right now is that uh, people just don't like it. <laughs> And like, how is that working for you? <laughs> Just to be in a constant state of rebellion. <laughs> Does that mean we shouldn't fight climate change? There you go. Does that mean we shouldn't fight climate change? It's a very complicated question to my mind because I don't feel that something as massive as a change, such a change on the planet that's going to just reorder so many things is really subject to our opinions. And it's, it gets complicated when you start trying to make other people conform to what you think they ought to conform to because that's what you want. Every person has to do what they actually feel drawn to do. And you have to pay attention to what your, your real consciousness is in doing things. Because if you're, doing, if you're acting with anger and you're acting with fear and um, selfish concern for what's yours that you may lose, then it's that vibration that is really the problem. I mean, Swami's answer to all of it was really simple. If everyone in the world lived the way we do at Ananda, we wouldn't have any of these problems. And he didn't just mean living in a community where not everybody has to have their own lawnmower or, or something like that. He also meant the consciousness with which we live, which is respectful regard for realities other than our own, an awareness that there is a divine force happening and it isn't just a matter of collective egos making up their mind. What happens now is that one set of egos wants one thing and another set of egos wants another and this set of egos has their all opinions based on this and this set of egos has their opinions based on that. And some of them, I actually think, are more objectively true than others. But it's the whole attitude. I mean, the decision that I made a zillion years ago, I mean, in this incarnation at the very beginning, was that consciousness was the whole problem. And it is the whole problem. We, if, if people had the right consciousness, every solution is at hand. It isn't that we don't have the right solutions. We have the technology, we have the capability, we have the wealth. We're, we don't want to use it. And the only way we're ever going to want to use it properly is when consciousness changes. And consciousness doesn't change 
from confrontation. Consciousness changes from inner discipline and inner reality. So I consider myself to be intensely politically active, more so than almost anyone I know, because I've spent my whole life trying to change people's consciousness. Because once that begins, then we're actually on the right side of the question. I mean, what's happening on the planet is many, many, many years of acting as if nature, there is no reality beyond the human. And that the human just can do whatever it wants without, there's no natural world, there's no natural forces, there's no devas, there's no nature, there's no mother nature, there's no mother earth. It's just me, and if I want it, I'll take it. And that's basically what we've worked with. Some of it has been very well-meaning. You know, people didn't necessarily know the implications of what they were doing. But still, it's just a matter of consciousness to me. If a person feels that they have a responsibility to effect some kind of external change, then I'm all for it, but watch your consciousness. Because if you start doing it with anger and with fear, then that's the real pollution. That consciousness is the real pollution. And it's so, you know, and and that's just what Swami said, if you feel that's your job, then do it, and do it really well. But do it in the right way. I mean, there you are. Does that make sense? Mankind has been taking and taking and taking and taking without giving back for a really long time. And whatever form that takes, it's it's that dissonance that's the real dissonance. See, all of this wreaks havoc with conventional thinking. It just, it just tears conventional thinking to pieces, which is what happened to me as I was growing up spiritually with Swamiji. I would just blithely present to him all of my assumed opinions, and he would kindly but emphatically cut them to ribbons. Because, you know, if, if, we're at, if our planet is actually moving toward the galactic center... It's more like people are inspired to act in certain ways. It's not necessarily that those actions are causing it. And so what's happening is that what, the biggest thing that's happened on, on this planet in our lifetime is atheism, selfishness, and greed. Which is, now that we don't belong to a greater reality than myself, then I really better take care of myself. And if I'm just taking care of myself, and there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, there's no karma, there's no consequence, I should just enjoy myself as much as I can. And I should pretty much get everything I want. And what does it matter what happens to you? And that's where we are. And that's all our politicians are like that. Everybody's just grabbing for themselves. And, you know, now they're trying to scientifically document that this happens and that happens, but it's, it's, a, it's a consciousness. Like, nobody created the organic food movement, but people's consciousness created the organic food movement and the health food movement and uh, yoga practice and mindfulness in schools. I mean, that was, those were not edicts from the top. Those were realizations from the bottom because consciousness is shifting. And, you know, an aversion against capital punishment. And, you know, it, in Jesus' time, they crucified him. But it wasn't special for Jesus. They crucified everybody. 
And they crucified them on the public streets. I mean, just imagine, we go out in El Camino and they're having a several crucifixions and there's people nailed to crosses dying on the highway. That's what was going on. I mean, it's, it's barbaric beyond our imaginings, but at the time it wasn't. Because that's, it was Kali Yuga at the bottom. Now it's unthinkable to us because we're in a different space. And the way we're treating planet Earth will gradually become unthinkable. And so right now what's happening is that a few people are realizing, a few, a number of people are realizing that what we're doing is unthinkable. But not everyone, so now what you have is this. Which is apparently what happens in yoga transitions. Is that a new force comes up and gradually, well, Master said this will be a violent confrontation. That this will not transition without something explosive. Which is, you know, positive and negative. Either nature herself, as Swami said, Mother Earth's rhythms are quite slow, but when she makes up her mind, there's no stopping her. Our friends in Hawaii who've had their community there, you know, they just had to watch that volcano just pour its heart out for however many weeks and just, I mean, you could have all the pigeons in the world. It was just going to happen. Hurricanes... Tides, it, something is definitely going on, and it's definitely related to human consciousness. So we have to then decide what do I do about that. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? But some people are. Some people, their job is to 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 wake people up to Mother Nature, and if that's your job, you ought to do it because it your everyone is balancing something. You know, sometimes, well, Swamiji said that um, a lot of American Indians have reincarnated in America now, and they're the ones who are really trying to right the balance. The ecology movement, not by people who are actually in Native American bodies, but, but American Indians with that consciousness who are born in whatever bodies they're born in, usually not Native, I mean, many are not born in Native American bodies because the money and the privilege and the influence is in other cultural groups. So that those people are being born into places where they can influence. And they are. Swami's statement, and I'll finish it, he said there's four reincarnated groups on the planet right now. Atlanteans, who who took technology so far in Atlantis that the island, that the whole continent sank. That was at the uh, uh, Kali Yuga, I mean, uh, Satya Yuga, crossing the high point, beginning to come down. The whole, the whole continent went under. That's the legend of Atlantis, and which seems to be a true legend. So that, and that was because they got so out of tune with nature and so intense on technology when they began to descend that the whole continent went under. And those people are here again, creating it again, and maybe trying to get it right or not. And then there's incarnated Romans who, by their absolute debauchery, complete immoral um, nature, brought that civilization down. He said they run uh, the entertainment and politics. (laughs) That's who we have in charge there. Then you have American Indians who have come back, mostly in in white bodies, mostly, as Swami put it, rich enough to buy back their land. (laughs) 
and they're pushing the whole ecology movement. And then you have East Indians, which is a lot of us, or we're, we're, we're sort of both kinds of Indians. And East Indians are bringing in a new spiritual awareness. He said, uh, the Indians of both types are aware of all, gr- all four groups. They can see all four groups. The Atlanteans and the Romans can barely see each other. And they don't know we're here at all. And if they know we're here, we're just a complete lunatic fringe that they're completely ignoring. And that the Romans and the Atlanteans are going to bring it down again. They're all getting another chance to bring it down. You know, the entertainment industry and politics is absolutely destroying the moral fiber of the country, just chewing it up and spitting it out. It's just going right down the garbage disposal. And the American Indians and the East Indians are quietly building a new civilization. And, 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 and what's going to happen, he says, the, the Romans and the Atlanteans will conspire to destroy it. And the few that are, the ones that are left after whatever cataclysmic events are coming, I say this all very cheerfully, but this is how Master said it, whatever, after these cataclysmic events, the ones that are left will be quite surprised to see us and quite astonished by what a complete civilization we have, and then it'll be our turn and we'll get to build it. Our turn and we'll get to rebuild it. This is, how, yeah, this is how Swami put it. Now, whether this is you, me, or anyone, so what Swami is describing by using these terms, he's describing the forces that are at play. And that's, I mean, that's the, those are the forces we're looking at. Complete hedonistic selfishness, technology that has become divorced from any kind of human values, and eco- ecological love for, you know, relationship to the earth that is appropriate, relationship to God that's appropriate. Those are the f- forces that you're watching. And they're much bigger than anybody's idea of them. It's like they, they exist. And when you think about being in the astral world and you're trying to decide where you're going to reincarnate, you need to, I mean, all of us, no matter what level of evolution you are, you, if you're a very gross person or a very refined person and, and you're compelled by your karma to reincarnate, you're not a, a master who just chooses or is sent, you look around. You look at all of the physical world. In this book, it, uh, Swami says, do we always come back to earth? Oh, no, he said, there's countless planets for us to incarnate on. If you came back to the same one, you would learn too fast. That's what Master says. So you're, we're in the astral world, whatever that really is. Our karma makes us restless. We need to find a place to incarnate. And so in the vast creation, our magnetism draws us someplace that's appropriate. And if we're really a murderous evil type and really want to be violent and and have um, our day and need to have that experience in order to grow through it, wow, planet transitioning from Kali to Dwapara, that's going to be a hell of a scene. I think I'll go get into that one. And really, that's what, well, look around, that's what we're getting. We're getting a lot of people with pretty demonic karma, you know, who are just acting out pretty hard things. I mean, it scares the living daylights out of us. But we have to really stop and think who's in charge. And then other people who don't have any of those qualities think, wow, that scares the living daylights out of me. I think I need to go there and try to get a little courage in the face of catastrophe. It's just as likely. Why, why would we think, oh, I just want, you know, warm breezes and pretty flowers and I just want to sit by the stream. 
you know, just for a couple of incarnations. Swami, went, the first time he went to Hawaii, he said, before the missionaries came, when Hawaii just belonged to the Hawaiians, he said, living there was like not quite coming out of the astral world. <laughs> he said, you didn't have to work. You know, the weather was so beautiful, fruit, coconuts, fish. I mean, you just didn't have to put in any effort. You could just have this lovely life without uh, really having to engage. And then, of course, things happened. But that really doesn't help us. So again, so you find yourself on a planet like this one with all of these different forces fighting each other and uh, you ask yourself, what am, what, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And everybody has a different answer. I don't mean that the fact that this man, that you know, the people who are going to get for themselves and destroy the whole place are doing a thing, anything that's going to ultimately make them happy, but they may have to go through a necessary stage. And and this is the, the hard part because we're all equal before God, even those not merely Jesus Christ, Lord Krishna, and great sages everywhere, but even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. I mean, you can't, you can't just take part of it. If it's true, it has to be true all the way through. And, you know, you just, it's a lifelong project. At least I found it to be so. You, you just you, you just so want to tuck in some of the edges and have it just be the way I want it to be, but you have to keep pushing, you know, until you're not afraid anymore. Because most of the time when we reject ideas, it's, it frightens us to accept them. At least that's what I watched with Swami. Whenever I would fight against what he said and then stop and think or feel more clearly I was always afraid I was always afraid and he he was so intelligent I just couldn't I just couldn't I couldn't comprehend how he could be so intelligent and I I finally figured out it was because his, his the power of his mind came from the clarity of his heart he wasn't afraid he just wasn't afraid of anything, and therefore he didn't have to twist his thoughts. So it's it's very different than we first think it's going to be. Well, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. A couple of thoughts came up during the break that seem worth sharing. One of Master's predictions was that um, the world will gradually turn brown. I mean, people in the world will turn brown, that the races will gradually mix until everybody's kind of a light shade of brown. And that uh, also that the city of Boston will have a tropical climate and the people there will have dark skin. (laughs) You know, I was, I smiled. There there used to be, there were two girls who came to our uh, temple at different times. They were both from Finland. And they, they were, they, it was a coincidence that they were both from Finland. They, weren't, they didn't come together. But one particular day, I was talking to one, and somehow I said, it, and I pointed to the other, and I realized they looked exactly alike. And I said, does everyone in your country look like you? And they said, yes. You know, it, that Finland had been a very isolated, blonde, blue-eyed sort of place. But now there's Syrian refugees coming in. 
to Scandinavia. And of course, imagine, I mean, and it is, there's a, there's a huge freak out about all of this, all these people who are moving all over the place. And Syrian refugees in Finland do not look like my two girlfriends who are Finnish. You know, they, they really look different. So there's a panic over it, which is what people are doing. But gradually, there they are. And they'll probably stay. Pretty soon, the children are going to be going to school together. Pretty soon, the children are going to start dating and fall in love and start making little combination babies. <laughs> and pretty soon, Finland is not going to look like Finland anymore. And the only reason people are freaking out is because Finland's supposed, supposed to look a certain way. But that's just because Syrian refugees never came there before. I mean, and it's like, we can get all upset about it, but the other side of it is, how the heck did Syrian refugees get to Finland? I mean, there's, you can trace it all down, but is anybody in charge? You know, how is this really happening? And, th- and that's what, beginning, if you, this area, of course, is Dwapara Yuga, you know, on, on steroids. <laughs> it's just like, in t- especially in terms of cultures mixing. The YMCA where I swim, the signs are in English, Spanish, I presume it's Chinese and Russian. I think there's just four. Yeah. And, and every sign, you know, like hang your towel here is four times. Don't use your cell phone in the dressing room. You know this four times. And it's fun because two of them are not even the same script. But that's just how they make all the signs at the local YMCA where I go. And, and, and then they used to, somebody who didn't know English perfectly used to have signs that they, the grammar wasn't correct, but they seem to have sorted that out. You know, where the wordsmith in me would flinch every time. Let me see. Like now I can't remember, but there was a classic one over the water extractor for the bathing suits that every single time I would go, I would parse the grammar out and realize it was wrong. Just I couldn't help myself, but finally somebody else changed it. Probably one of the Russians wrote it or before, who knows. But in the, um, the other thing that we were talking about because I talked about science from one angle, but the other side of science, which is, of course, we have to talk about, is that science is leading directly to religion. And that, you know, the same author who wrote the Yugas with Joseph Selby, also most recently, his most recent book is called The Physics of God. And because all of these, this scientific thinking, the more they stare at the universe, and oh goody, I get to go one more sentence into this one. He says, science cannot really invent anything. They just simply see what's there. And so Western science just started looking at the world. But the more it looked at the world and looked deeper and deeper and deeper into the world, what happens? It begins to see what reality is made of. And and they come at it from completely different angles, math, science, weight, measure, you know, duplicatable experiments and all these different things, but they end up in the same place. The the inner scientists from the East and the outer scientists from the West are coming into the same place. So this is also why the advance of science is very helpful, because it's beginning to take apart this fragmented, separated, um, isolated concept of reality. Even climate change and things like that, it's like they're cutting down trees in, in the Amazon, and that's going to make a hurricane, uh, make a, 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 a drought and a fire in the northwest of America. And it's just like science is also helping the Indians to understand because 
there, there, there's a power there. There's a, a true divine power. When I talk about the Atlanteans and the Romans, I'm talking about the ones who brought those civilizations down. But it's not understanding creation and being able to creatively apply the facts of creation to the upliftment of mankind. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's, it's when you think about, I, I saw a movie, just a movie from, I don't know what it would be, the early 19, probably the early 1900s. It was British and it was set in one of those big mansions and there was some really, there was the rich girl and then there was the servant girl and the rich girl was really horrible and mean and the servant girl. And so one of the scenes was that the servant girl had done all the laundry and she had all these sheets on the line and the really mean rich girl, you know, just in this really ugly scene in the movie, dirtied all the laundry. So I was watching it from, a, from you know, just, I was, and I realized if you didn't know history, she would just be able to pull those down and pop them in the washing machine and put them back out again. You wouldn't know that she had to haul the water, boil the water, wash them by hand, wring them out, carry them out to the line. You know, it was a whole day of backbreaking work that this woman had just, uh, the other, the meanie, had just caused her. And that's how people used to spend their time, days and days of backbreaking work. And science has liberated us. I mean, liberated especially women, but liberated all of us. Men no longer have to just work in the fields and, you know, just all these different ways that it's been a, a, a tremendous uplifting force. And that's the difference. See, also, Kali Yuga, the only kind of energy is physical. And in Dwapara Yuga, we understand more subtle forms of energy. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Electricity, steam, started with steam. Now all of these energetic forces that I don't understand at all, but we use them constantly. I, you know, I pick up that cell phone and I turn it on and I can go click, click, click and there's the face of my friend, God knows anywhere. And we just talk to each other. But where's the energy for that? Whereas before, if that person was on the other side of the world, I would have had to get, if I even could have, on a boat and a, a, a horse and then on foot to be able to go face to face. But because of all this energy, all of a sudden we're just connected like that. And that's what science, the positive side of science, is doing for us. So we, again, we have to sort of think about these things in all these different ways. The yugas, when you're, when you're building in your own heart and mind an understanding of self-realization, the yugas is really important because the, the whole thing makes sense when you've got the yugas. Especially, let me phrase that differently, if you're trying to be, in, if you're trying to have to make sense out of the world around us in a way that doesn't contradict the principles of self-realization. The only way you can do that is with the yugas right now. Otherwise, you, it's just terrifying. And it's sort of terrifying anyway, but at least it's purposeful on some longer rhythm. Okay, does that all make sense? So, something about math. Let me just see if I can find this one for a minute. Oh, yes, a friend of mine uh, who was um, uh, studying mathematics. No, he wasn't studying mathematics. That didn't matter. I was just talking to him about the spiritual path, and he was explaining to me sort of how he went from being an atheist to being interested in God. 
And he said he was a serious student of mathematics. And on the level that he was working, he began to understand that if it, that every mathematical answer, he said, was uh, uh, was beautiful and harmonious. Those are his words. And he said he began to learn as a mathematician that if the resolution to the question was not beautiful and harmonious, then it was probably wrong. And he began to realize that if mathematics resolved in beauty and harmony, he, he thought that probably the rest of the creation would too. And that was the first time it occurred to him that there might be some higher wisdom at work here. Because he was, he was deciding that the answer to the dilemma of human life was neither beautiful nor, nor harmonious. But he realized he wouldn't, he wouldn't even accept that answer for a math problem. So how could that be true for all of life? And so he began to study it from another angle. Isn't that a lovely way to think about it? But that's just one more way that scientists become devotees, is that when you see how this whole thing works, and, and, and in another week or two when we get through this book, there's one of, one very close to this one of Master Stang's, um, which is just saying when you really look at creation, you begin to think suspiciously that somebody's in charge, you know, that there really is something going on here. And... And then you, then you get to mankind has free will, that individual souls have to follow their own destiny, that everything is directional, and what may be long behind you is actually forward for someone else. And on this particular planet, at this particular time, there's a, a, a wide discrepancy of the, of the jivas who are incarnated at the same time. When... Uh, Swami was talking once about Satya Yuga, which is the highest of the yugas. And I was lamenting some horrible circumstance characteristic of our particular time. And jokingly I said to Swamiji, oh, the next time you incarnate and we have to come with you, let's wait for a higher yuga. His first response was, I do not intend to come back at all, which he modified before he died. But then he said, even Satya Yuga is just the material plane. He said, except um, the whole world is like Ananda and people like us are in charge. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> in other words, <clears throat> true Kshatriyas and true Brahmins actually run it instead of Shudras and Vaishyas because it's an age when Shudras and Vaishyas get power. It's a planet. And Brahmins and Kshatriyas sort of struggle on the side. Now see, if it's Kali Yuga descending, which is what the poor disciples of Jesus were in, it was not only the depths of Kali Yuga, it went down, because it didn't hit bottom till 500, 500 years after Jesus' life. So for 500 years, it just got worse. And it wasn't so very good when Jesus was there, and it just got worse. So what did the, the Christians do? They just walked away. They went into isolated monasteries. They went into desert caves. It was just pointless to try to relate to society because around 500 AD, the barbarians swept through and just burned everything anyway. It was pointless to build. And the monasteries had taken, you know, the, the knowledge, so to speak, of civilization and, and hid it from the barbarians who burned the libraries and just took everything down. So it's very different rhythms. You know, so we, we, we would have had a destiny 
and the fact that the fact that Master wanted to create um, intentional communities in the midst of society where householders and monastics could live a, a, a regular life. The fact that he taught, when, when you read all the different classes Master taught, he taught how to attract your true soulmate, how to uh, be super healthy, how to be magnetically successful, how to raise powerful children. I mean, he just, he taught you how to live in society with the principles of self-realization. And then Swamiji, of course, multiplied that you know, a uh, hundred thousand times with all the work that he did. But it was all to say, we're moving into a higher age and therefore, instead of hiding it away, we have to bring it out. And that's why the traditional monasteries are decimated. You know, you have these monks and nuns whose whole whole society has been was built on, on a, a constant stream of young vocations who would take over the work and then take care of the old ones and then the new ones would... and But there's no new vocations because even people who are deeply spiritual, very few of them want to separate themselves. They feel, for either political, ecological, or spiritual reasons, they want to be in it, not away from it. So once again, a, a tradition that is hundreds of years old is just falling to pieces. The reason we're in this church is and this is how we were told was the truth of it. It's like the Catholics do not have enough priests. And if you look around in America, many of the priests are not are not American born. They're coming from um, less developed countries, which are in a different stage, where so many of the priests are not American born because in this culture where we are in our progress, people are not drawn to that life anymore quite apart from the scandals or anything like that. That's not what I'm referring to. But the reason the Catholics gave this up is that they couldn't... They had eight dioceses in Palo Alto, but they just didn't have the clergy to sustain them anymore, so they consolidated. And then this church became superfluous, so we were able to buy it. But also, I love it because... Well, I'll, I'll go back. In Assisi, there's a Catholic... In the town of Assisi, Italy, there's a Catholic church that is dedicated to Mary, but everyone refers to it as the Minerva Temple, because it was a temple dedicated to Minerva, which was way back before Jesus, and then Jesus came and the Catholics took over the Minerva Temple, and then we took over the Catholics <laughs> and became a self-realization place. And it's, it's, a, it's a straight line, it's just the way these things develop. When I first was here, once again, I've managed not to talk about this book. Um, when we first moved in here, and let's see, it might even have been set up for the priests to have their back to the congregation and face the altar. Yeah, I think it was set up that way at the time. Big crucifix, big uh, communion, uh, mat, table for the mass. And the first few times I'm, I was speaking in this, and you know, this may have been fanciful on my part, but I don't think so. So I was dressed, we wore white then, so I'm dressed in white, I'm not speaking in Latin, I'm female, and I'm facing the congregation. And this had been a Catholic church for like 40, or 40 years at least. I really saw these priests, I mean not physically, but I could just almost see them is what I want to say. They were so upset. <laughs> 
You know, just like they were just staring. Their spirits were just staring at me. All those doors used to be confessionals. So they were, that's what those were. The priest was in the middle and the confessor was on either side. When we first came into this church, all the Catholics, former Catholics, went in and opened the door and sat where the priest had always sat. (laughs) Several of them said, I always wanted to do this. But anyway, I'm sitting here and I could just feel their spirits and they were annoyed. They were really annoyed. They went on for several Sundays and finally, and maybe this is fanciful, maybe it wasn't. Finally I said, get over it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm sorry, but it's over for you and it's, it's our turn. And then they went away. But you can see how they would feel that way. But understood from a different point of view. And, and now you have to apply that template to everything that you're upset about. Why would we really want to save the alligators? They're kind of stupid and mean creatures, aren't they? I mean, they're God's own creatures, but is it really such so great to have creatures like that in the world? Imagine a harmonious world where we don't have creatures like that. Why would we not want to go there? Very confusing, isn't it? Okay. I'll try one more sentence or two before we give up. So, Master pointed out after Master welcomed the discoveries of modern science, that science cannot really invent anything, nor can artists really create anything. All that man can do, he said, is rearrange what is there already. Isn't that interesting? The arts and sciences, like man himself, are not important in the great... Like man, the arts and sciences, like man himself, are not important in the great scheme of things except as they help to unfold the divine plan for the universe. So I guess I've been talking about this thing the whole time, haven't I? I just was anticipating what was coming next. Humility before God is the beginning of true understanding. And as Master also said, pride is the death of wisdom. So, I mean, that's really what we've been talking about the whole time, isn't it? Humility before God. And what, what happens is, Well, what happens is nothing. Pride is the death of wisdom. And pride can also be the egoic pride that thinks that man is in charge. See, everything comes down to atheism. It's it's extremely interesting. Once you really capture that, if we are part of a greater reality, if there is an infinite divine force, Satchitananda, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss, if it exists... If we are part, part, all part of that, if the goal of our life is to be ever more in tune with it and to manifest it more clearly, then all the rest of, 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 of right behavior follows quite naturally from that. I, I cannot take my comfort and my pleasure at your expense. I, I can't treat the God's creation as if it doesn't matter. I can't imagine that the flower and the rose and the rain and the, and the petroleum coming up out of the earth, you know, that all of it is, is, not, is without consciousness and that the whole plan has no harmony to it if Satchitananda exists and is the power behind everything. We start behaving with reverence and respect and, and we have to treat each other differently. And when we see all these anomalies in the world, we instead of having an opinion about what they're supposed to be, we, we have to 
be humble in the presence of God and ask God, why? You know, why is this innocent child suffering? Why is it not raining anymore? You know, why am I so angry about these experiences? Why am I not finding the love that I want in my life? You either, we either do those things in anger or we do those things with, humil- with humble interest. And as soon as you start asking questions with humble interest, the world reveals itself to you. We did our play a couple of years ago on George Washington Carver, who was the, the he was sort of like a saint born um, to, to, the, to black people in America just at the end of the Civil War. And his work, um, with, along with the other great uh, black man of his time, educator whose name escapes me at the moment, the man who started, t- uh, no, the man who started Tuskegee University, but that doesn't matter. But the two of them basically helped transition that whole race of people from slavery to freedom because they, they didn't know how to live. And George Washington Carver made countless agricultural inventions that enabled the farmers in the South to uh, have a livelihood. And so, and George Washington Carver himself was, was completely, everything he invented and discovered, he discovered because God told it to him. And his, his motto, which we put on the t-shirt for the play, was, if you, love every, if you love anything enough, it will reveal to you its secrets. And George Washington Carver would go out in the early morning before dawn and he'd walk through the woods and he'd talk to God and that's how he got his instructions. And the charming story that's told about him is he's walking through the woods and he said to God, he would talk to God, he said, God, you know, Lord, why did you make creation? And Lord, the Lord answered him and said, George, that's a mighty big question for someone like you. So George said, okay, Lord, then why did you make me? And the Lord answered, better, George, better, but that's still a mighty big question. So then George said, okay, Lord, why did you make the peanut? And God said, now that's something we can work on together. (laughs) And then he went on to invent like 105 uses for the peanut, which became an entire industry for the South. And that's, I mean, that's the story he told about, he just, God would tell him all the things you could do with a peanut that he'd never known before, because... The scientist does not invent anything. You see how, how beautifully it all fits together? And what's happening in our education these days, poor children, is they're just being told that it's just a bunch of stuff. I mean, and that's why they're so cynical and worse, suicidal, because it makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. And then you're just told, be strong in yourself. You can do it. You can. And then in an attempt to like, give people some meaning... They just tell them how powerful their egos are. You can just set your mind to it. You can do anything you want. And so then you're raising this whole group of people, and I speak from experience on this one, who on one level look like they can manifest anything, but in their hearts they know that they are really powerless because we are all powerless. So you're you're developing this incredibly schizophrenic uh, reality for a lot of these young people, uh, which uh, is well-meaning, but it's really a nightmare. 
because they, they're told they can do anything and they're given so much privilege and they're given all these ways of doing it, but there's nothing underneath it. And somewhere they all know that. What is the meaning of this? Where is happiness? Where does power really come from? How do I find true friendship? How do I find love? How do I, you know, raise a child myself? It's all just on the surface. And fortunately, there's a lot of great souls being born and they're just going to fight back. And it'll work itself out. And education for life or systems like it, without anybody ever making an edict 50 years from now, it'll just rise out of the soil like yoga practice, meditation, organic foods, you know, and all the other things are just rising out of the soil. These will come too. So if the answer isn't harmonious and beautiful, it isn't the right answer yet. And even if we were in Satya Yuga, like Swami said to me, it's still the material plane. It's a lot nicer because it's just more pleasant to live, but it's still the material plane. And, you know, chaos like we're living in and contrast like we're living in is also good for us because it keeps us awake and it scares us and therefore we have to work harder. Okay? So we did one, but we did one, 309. We might talk about whether or not mankind really matters, but otherwise we're done with 309.